Well, good evening. I'd like to, for the second night in a row, congratulate you for now making it through the second day. Now, the retreat retreats have often been called detox centers or a swamp, on, especially in the first few days. And sometimes the second day is even swampier than the first. So, uh, not easy to move through the sludge, but you've made it. So proud of all of you. So, and thanks for your practice so far. And I never forget that uh, if you weren't here, I wouldn't be here. And it's, it's a real joy to be with you. I want to offer, since you've been through a couple of the days of the detox center or swamp, uh, offer you some reassuring passages from two two teachers that uh, that I like very much. One is from a meditation master named uh, Bhante Gunaratna, and he comments on the mind. Somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, and you never noticed. (laughs) Put in a slightly more nuanced way, (laughs) the words of Francois Fenelon, who was a monk in the 1600s, 1651 to 1715. And he said, as the light increases, and we've been applying the light of attention, as the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness, and we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. (laughs) Bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. The whole of this practice is centered on the understanding that, as Rumi put it, the cure for pain is in the pain. Uh, And it is our, in general, it is our attempt to escape from pain. As Mark spoke beautifully about the practice of mindfulness last night, it's our escape from it that keeps inviting the pain, increases our dis-ease. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about the the path of the Buddha's path of awakening, the Buddha's way to uh, come to the uh, end of of so much distress that we carry around. And when I talk about this, I I don't I'm not just offering a teaching, although I it will be centered on the. Uh, teaching of the Four Noble Truths, and I want to highlight a little bit the, the five hindrances, the difficult energies that arise for everyone. But with all wisdom teachings, and the Buddha was no different, the Buddha had teachings. And in fact, in, in the time of the Buddha, it wasn't called Buddhism. That's a more 19th century colonial creation. It was called the Buddha Dharma. It was called the Buddha's Dharma. That was what he offered. And there was this guy's Dharma and that guy's Dharma, and this was the Buddha Dharma. And as with all Dharmas that flow from from someone's direct experience, uh, it always reflects the different elements of their life, what happened to them. So 
when you hear the words of the of the four noble truths you can hear how the you may be able to hear how he came to say these particular four things and realize them and encourage everyone else to realize them as well it all started when he was a uh, 20 in his 20s he was relative to his time exceedingly privileged whenever i think about his level of privilege it's very much like our level of privilege and i say relatively because there's some every there's a a wide range of privilege here in the room some more privileged than others but relative to those who have who don't have their basic needs met that either by from oppression or illness or poverty or war or any number of of difficult circumstances some people just don't have the conditions available to them to be able to contemplate the the nature of reality they're just constantly dealing on a survival level so very much like us the buddha had time on his hands he had a pretty pleasant situation and he relative to he was a, a prince like person his father owned lots of land and his father wanted him to go into uh into the family business and take over the all the lands and and have that be part of his life servicing this big uh, all this stuff does that sound familiar but in the course of his 20s like the rest of us he started to feel rather dissatisfied started to feel that existential angst that says there's something not quite right here i don't feel right uh, there's something wrong with me and there's something wrong with the way that with the way i'm living i'm just not happy i'm chronically in spite of all of my comfort and privilege I am dissatisfied. Does that ring true to anyone? I'm and I'm innocently and uh because I love myself, I want to be happy. I want to search and I'm, so I'm going to search. This is exactly what happened to him. But he didn't know where to go. Didn't know what to do exactly. But what really turned his attention toward the very thing that we're doing here and we've all had our own version of this so you really are in the you are by the virtue of coming here you are walking in the footsteps of of the buddha and and when i say that i in the footsteps of the you could put it in terms of the hero's journey of having that awakening and then that urge to to find your find that deep meaning that your bliss your beingness as they call it in hinduism satchidananda but he was grappling for what to do but then what really turned a rather laissez faire experience of dissatisfaction into a passionate confrontation with his dissatisfaction was the meeting of his meeting with what are called the four heavenly messengers he in the course of his restlessness he started to wander around the the area where he lived and his it's said that his father tried to protect him from seeing anything that would disturb his mind anything that would make him not want to follow in his footsteps but nevertheless he was able to wander around and he saw face to face and this may not seem like a big deal to us but it speaks to our tendency not to see these things but he saw the face of sickness someone his own age and he saw that that any kind of pride that we have in our health is um is foolish pride because it's we're very vulnerable and then he saw an extremely old person and he saw that uh any pride in youth 
was also foolish pride. And then he saw a corpse. And he saw that even pride in life is foolish pride. And this shook him up. And it led to the, uh, a shock. It's said that he experienced the shock and dismay when he realized that everything that he had been uh, searching for, anything he had been looking for to find a sense of uh, reliable peace, and a sense of ease, was just as fleeting as health, uh, youth, and life. He saw it was completely unreliable, unsatisfactory, marked by what he later spoke about, marked by what he called dukkha. Dukkha is the word that's sometimes loosely translated as suffering, but it really means stress, dissatisfaction, unreliable, uh, insubstantial. And this, um, this is what he saw was the nature of existence, of all that he held near and dear, all that he held to be a source of well-being unreliable and it caused in him a kind of revulsion and he didn't he just he couldn't go back to business as usual and I think I'm curious how many of you have felt that before anybody willing to say yeah this is not aversion really it's a kind of it's it's just this knowing that if I keep putting my hands on this fire I'll get burned Fortunately, he just, did, he just didn't see sickness, old age, and death. He saw a, uh, a renunciate, a mendicant, someone who had a very even, calm countenance, someone who, who reflected a, a different way of living, a, a way of living that was, uh, that was not as frenzied, not as busy, not as associating their well-being with productivity and and acquisition, somebody that seemed with quite simple conditions quite at ease. So he started his meditative service. This person was a meditator. And so he found the, the best meditation teacher that he could find. And mostly what they were teaching was elements of what we're doing here. They were teaching, uh, collecting the attention, but keeping it on a single object. But they weren't, they weren't teaching people how to relate to, to pain and uh, sadness and loneliness and how to work with unwanted sounds and how to work with uh, incessantly busy mind. He was simply, they were simply teaching people to shut it all out to suppress the waves of the mind. And a little bit of our emphasis on the primary anchor of the breath serves a little bit of the function of pacifying our mind a little bit. But in this practice, it's all in the service of being able to use that one-pointedness, that collectedness, to be able to then know with a much brighter light, with much more clarity, what's going on and be a lot less reactive to whatever we're noticing. But all that was being taught at that time was Suppress the waves of the mind, get really high, get really stoned, and experience what has been described as a supramundane happiness, uh, beyond the mundane, transcendental happiness, unmixed happiness with no shadow of any, I want something different than what's going on, I don't like it here. This practice doesn't work. None of the hindrances, none of, no restlessness or agitation, no dullness, complete peace and tranquility. Sounds nice, doesn't it? But it clearly missed the point. Because he saw that even that beautiful state of mind that he later described as a springboard, as, a, as a, something that, uh, that is uh, inspiring and helps us in our practice to, experience, to taste moments of quiet, moments of peace, moments of not wanting anything to be different. But 
these experiences themselves, he saw, were subject to the same unreliability, the same unsatisfactoriness. And holding on to them just produces stress. And chasing after them produces produces stress. And he saw that this is not liberation at all. This is not freedom. This is just... uh, this is high class, high class pleasure, refined pleasure. That was it. No one to tell him what to do, where to go. But he so desperately wanted to, uh, to satisfy that one desire that no other desire can satisfy. That desire for to find that his deepest nature, to find freedom. So he went out on his own. Uh, at first he started hanging out with some people he thought were really serious like him, and that, but they were starving themselves and doing ascetic practices. And mostly uh, he, all it do, did was make him really hungry and his mind unable to meditate at all. And he just got tighter and tighter and he saw that this is an extreme view and all it leads it leads much more to a kind of nihilistic aversion to life the view was if you could just abandon your body and not treat it well and not feed it not care for it that somehow you would transcend it and all it did was uh, lead to almost him almost dying said that he could touch his stomach and 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 he could feel his spine, so skinny. So even though his ascetic friends were really sincere, they, they, they didn't quite, um, they didn't, um, he knew that that wasn't liberation. So finally, he had nowhere to go, so he just sat down and decided as, to, as one uh, Zen master used to scream out on retreats. My friend Anna Douglas had a teacher who would scream out all the time, die on the cushion, die on the cushion. <laughs> he decided to die on the cushion or he would not get up until he found, found the truth. And in a sense, it's at that point that he did what all of us are doing. He sat there, and he collected himself, aroused. He ate, first he ate, of course, and <laughs> got his strength back, remembered when he was a young boy lying under a cherry apple tree, and he was really comfortable, well-fed, and he, he saw that this extreme of asceticism was not, was not uh, helpful, nor was, had he, he saw, nor were, was... Uh, complete indulgence in in sense pleasures, which he had done in his younger years. So he began to see that there has got to be a middle, a middle place that goes beyond both. It's not, it's not, um, it doesn't go to an extreme. So he sat there, moderately uh, comfortable, well-fed, etc. He used some of the tools that he had developed concentration, but then he started to pay attention to the flow of his experience. That rare turning of attention to not to get somewhere, but to turn face to face. And an element of, as Mark was talking about mindfulness last night, one of the ways it's talked about in the sutras is it has three qualities to it. It's not just, I notice this. Great, we can all be great noticers, but it's a kind of noticing. And the way it's talked about is, first one is, the first element is face-to-face. It means you're, you're not just glancing at something, you're right there. It's, there's, you're so connected with what's occurring that there's, you can't even find a dividing line. So you're feeling the breath and you're just right with the experience of the breath or aching. And as we add the different states of mind and thoughts and images, right there with the the knowing of whatever it is that's happening, right there with the sound as it hits the ear. So there's face-to-face and then the quality of what's called uh, non-superficial. 
which means you sink into whatever you're noticing. So if you're exploring sensations, as we expanded today, you don't just observe them at a distance, but you allow your attention to become gentle and subtle and really take it in and sink into the middle of it. And then the last part is uh, sustained. So face-to-face, non-superficial, and sustained. So you actually experience the nature of whatever it is that you're paying attention to. So it's not, oh, I saw that, I saw that. It's not just little pings. It's what happens, what's happening, and what happens to that experience, what's its quality, and what happens to it when I notice it. So this is what he was doing, because his, his mind was really strong at that point, because he didn't want anything else. You know, we're still in the first few days of retreat, and we want everything else. But still, in spite of him having that one-pointed interest, he still was visited by the same mental states that, that we are. They've all often been represented uh, as the, the voice in our mind. It's called uh, Mara, the uh, mythical representation of that voice of temptation, that voice of, of doubt, that voice of desire, that voice that says, I would be a lot happier if they served pizza. <laughs> I, would be, I would be a lot happier if I was having a... Uh, perfect Northern California day where I and the mind that reviews the, the, mo- the best days that we had and assuming if we weren't here we'd be doing all of it wake up in the morning look into the eyes of our beloved <laughs> roll in the hay a little make your own special homemade cappuccino have a little game of tennis, make some perfectly organic, non-GMO fruits and vegetables, whatever it is that we imagine would make us happier than we are. So he was visited with the same ideas, the same wanting mind, the same mind that says, as Mark shares, I don't know if you've read this already, but... uh, he has a, a cartoon, not a, an advertisement that um, he shared with me about this. Did you read Spence? Advertising uh, about a, a character who is, is presented in this uh, advertisement as having piles of stuff. And the caption is... Uh, Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. <laughs> so the mind, our mind, and even in the Buddha's case, will ar- arises with just incessant desire, passionate fantasies. And the most common passionate fantasy that we tend to have on the, on the retreat is uh, what's called the VR and I'm sure a few of you, even though it's two days and a lot of slogging, you may have managed to notice somebody that you really like. You like the way they walk. You like their clothes. You like the, something about them. And they enter your mind, just the image of that person, and within 10 seconds, you have dated, <laughs> mated, Married, traveled, divorced, whatever. <laughs> and it's not so much the, the, the words of the fantasy, it's this amazing force of desire that seems so compelling and colors your experience so much that you're certain that that person is the secret to your happiness. And it can be quite painful. It can be quite painful. And the reverse is also true. Uh, which is what we call the VV, otherwise known as the Vipassana Vendetta. Where someone or something about the retreat, one of us maybe, triggers uh, a little bit of aversion. And day two, I have to tell you, is aversion day. And a few people describe their irritations and 
but it's, this is one of the common visitors. The same states of mind arose in the mind of the Buddha. This is Mara comes and says, I can't be happy until that person stops coming through the door and making so much noise, so late. I can't be happy until that person uh, stops uh, shuffling so much on their cushion. A mind that creates conditions that have to be fulfilled to be happy. This is the trick that our mind plays. The trick of the aversive mind says, uh, I can't be happy now. And it becomes a, a conviction. And of course, if you've fallen at any point in your practice into desire for that person or that thing or the, that, that escape from the retreat or whatever it is, or you've fallen into the aversion to something that's going on in the retreat, you have set up a habit in your mind that, same one the Buddha had, that your happiness um, is to be found um, some other time uh, in the imagined future. Unfortunately, the future never arrives because time is always and only now. But our mind projects a sense of well-being in the future. I talked about this the first night, how we set ourselves up and we put ourselves in this state of suspended, suspended happiness and hostage to the, to the future to a whole imaginary world. And consequently, because the future doesn't even exist, except as an idea in the present, it creates a feeling of, of I can't be happy now, and what if I'm not happy in the future? And so there's often a lot of restlessness and anxiety. So the, we end up in, a, in the restless mind, and then we... One of the expressions of restlessness is worry and agitation. Any of you recognize any of these states? Wanting, aversion, restlessness. Of course, all of that um, leaves us feeling not so happy here. And our bodies start to feel a little bit unpleasant. Not just a little bit unpleasant, a lot unpleasant. Because what seems to reduce our, the unpleasantness is being face-to-face, non-superficial, really mingling, really intimate with what's presenting itself. It's kind of an antidote for the complaining mind. But because our, we start to feel uncomfortable, we start to remember all the other times we've been uncomfortable in our life. And we can start with a simple pain in the knee and that pain in the knee turns into, oh, last time I tried this, I had a pain in the knee. You can hear by the tone, discouragement. Do you know, every time I try anything that's a little bit edgy, I start to feel uncomfortable. You know, I can't do this. And probably anything I ever try, I can't do. And I, I even know if I went and did Sufi dancing, I'd probably find something wrong there too. And these teachers, they look as neurotic as I am. <laughs> and this place, it looks like some kind of cult. People are, it looks like Land of the Living Dead on one hand. <laughs> or the, the back of that hospital that I... And you can see nothing's really happened here except the mind has become filled with doubt and uncertainty. And it just drains the life out of the practice. So these movements of mind, desire and aversion, then worry and restlessness, dullness, exhaustion from all of that, and doubt, these are mental states that visit. And they, when they go unnoticed, they torment our minds and make us feel we can't be happy now. We can't be okay. And this is the same mental states that you've been facing and the same ones that the Buddha faced. And what he ended up doing is what we recommend that you do. 
that you notice them. That you wake up to the fact that there is desire in the mind. That there is, for example, toward the end of a sitting. I'm sure you know this one well. The, the glorious fantasy of the bell ringing. <laughs> the, the secret to happiness again. <laughs> and the, the bell rings. Ah. And we fall into that, uh, that misplaced uh, understanding of, of where the happiness really came from. No doubt that we feel better sometimes. But what really makes us feel relief is not so much the bell ringing, but it is the end of that state of waiting, that state of wanting, that state of dependency on the bell ringing for our sense of well-being. So the next time that you notice the desire for the bell to ring, instead of getting all caught up in the bell being the secret to happiness, take your attention away from the bell. This is what the Buddha would recommend, I think. Take your attention away from the bell and feel that state of wanting, that state of waiting. Feel what that's like in your body. And notice what happens to it. More often than not, once that feeling of wanting meets the light of attention, you actually pay attention to it, it, cannot, it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't last that long. What feeds these these states of mind that, that make it feel as though we can't be happy is not noticing them. So the very things that torment us end up in our practice, just as they did for the Buddha, becoming the path, becoming the, as one teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, called the manure of Bodhi, the fertilizer of our awakening. So we explore the feeling of desire. We take our attention away from, for if we can for a few moments, from our Vipassana romance or from our, our Vipassana vendetta. And we feel what the state of desire or aversion is like. It has a few different effects. It allows us, one, to see that these states of mind are changing. And we don't always have to gratify every desire or get rid of everything we don't like in order to find relief. It is in the nature of that experience, once it's noticed, to arise and change and pass away. It's, it's like weather. Desire is like weather. Aversion is like weather. Same with, with worry and agitation. Once we notice it, and even with doubt, sometimes we need other antidotes. I don't want to get too much into that tonight. But, uh, but a few other things happen when we feel that those experiences directly. Instead of constantly looking for our escape, we feel when we feel them, we see that they're changing, we also feel their painful quality. And when you feel the pain of that, pain of wanting, the, pain, the ache of, um, of, of longing, when you feel the rumbling and the tension of aversion, and you really connect with that in the same heartful, mindful way, that becomes the manure for compassion. That becomes the tenderizing agent of our practice. We start to develop a little self-compassion, a little sympathy, and also a, a lot of sensitivity for other people, knowing everyone else is running around with the same torments in the mind, the same sense of dissatisfaction, the same sense of, of, um, of Suspended happiness. We're all in it together. So what the Buddha did was face these things. And when he faced these different voices of Mara, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, the restless mind, the doubting mind, a voice came to him that, who do you think you are sitting there and think you, thinking you can be, get enlightened? 
What he did at that time is he touched the earth. He took his seat. This is a lot of why we, we fortify our mind by putting it in our body. We steady ourselves. But then he let each experience completely fill his awareness. Let each one of the states that came to the point where he could say, Mara, I see you. I see you really clearly. And in case I forget about this, even after his awakening, and this, I think this is important for all of us, even after his awakening, Mara still came quite often. But he didn't, he didn't get caught up in what his mind did anymore. He, he was able to see it for what it was. But for a while, he was, it was, it was a, a great challenge, a great, a great drama, a, a profound drama of him having to deal with his mind, which is what it feels like here. Do any of you feel like you've been through a profound drama in the last few days? Isn't it amazing? The amazing thing is only six things have happened over and over again. <laughs> Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and all the varieties of thinking. And that's all. But yet it, in our mind, it grows into a, because, and also our physical body getting used to it, it grows into a, an intensely challenging uh, drama to, to be with ourselves to go against the stream of that, that endless view that, that the best is, uh, is somewhere else. So he sat there and an interesting thing happened. And hopefully, and many people have described this, and you maybe didn't know you were describing this, but the more he paid attention, the brighter his mind got. His his. It was as though his senses were getting cleaned by everything he paid attention to until his mind, his attention, the way he described it, his mind was shining in its clarity. And so there was, there was more light. And many people, or one person today in particular, said that all of a sudden the pictures in here looked brighter. The tapestries, they were kind of dull before and now they're brighter. Now did... Is that because the sun shined into the room? No, it's our senses are clean. And you probably noticed outside with the, the vividness of the, of the uh, colors and the sounds as though there's no sense of inside and outside. This is the natural fruit of, of collecting ourselves. It's what allows us, it's the same thing that happens when we connect with another person and we look into their eyes and we stay there for a while. We feel that, that non-separateness and we fall in love in one form or another with anybody, even to, not in the romantic sense, but in the, wow, I'm feeling it right now <laughs> sitting with you. <laughs> Pretty fun. So the brighter his mind got, um, the more he was he was not just interested in in what was rolling through his mind, but he was also being kind of pulled into sensing the the nature of his mind itself. And, And in that process, in that process, his clarity became so strong that he saw that every single experience that came into his mind came, it took shape in the mind and the body for a little while, and then it went away. And he saw that even even the most painful mood, even the most doubting thought was just, doubt was doubting, that there was... It was just happening all by itself. It was coming and going. And the more his, his mind stopped, uh, stopped um, reacting to whatever was coming, the more he saw things the way they are, clearly, the more he began to experience a taste of joy, 
a joy of being able to have everything come into your mind, everything happen, but he stopped reacting to it. Stopped pushing it away. Stopped grasping. Stopped telling, building a whole story about what was going on. And as he rested there in what was called the some call the joy of equanimity or balance. Uh, he saw that there was nothing in the world that um, because everything is coming and going, nothing that you can cling to. Nothing you can hold on to. And as his, as one way of putting it, as his tight fists of holding on tight fists of grasping released. There was tremendous space, tremendous openness. His heart just unleashed a feeling of, of deep peace and love. And he realized in a flash of insight that the, the sense of freedom that he was, had been looking for in all the wrong places was none other than the very nature of his own heart the very nature of his own mind. And he realized that that true well-being or true happiness uh, doesn't depend on conditions being a certain way. And he saw that most of his life he had been depending on, and most of us were just spinning in an endless wheel of uh, looking for... uh, peace in things that just increase our dissatisfaction, increase our increase the sense of those hindrances flowing through our mind, increase the sense of I, I want, I need, I have to have, I want to get rid of, I have to get rid of, increase the sense of worry, increase the exhaustion, and increase the sense of doubt that there is, there is even a, a place of peace. And Finally, out of, out of compassion, as he saw what he had experienced was so subtle, even though I've heard today glimpses of people just being with things as they are, every moment that we can be with something, just the way it is, is a little taste of that same well-being that doesn't depend on what's showing up. It's okay. Aching heart is like this. This is why I think it's Hafiz, the poet, says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. (laughs) Let it ferment and season you. So really, just feel it. You can tell that that says, let it... um, I forgot the poem now. (laughs) (laughs) But you can hear by the, the words that we don't have to run from our feelings and from our from our likes and our dislikes. We simply need to recognize them as changing conditions. So at first he didn't think anybody could get it. Anybody could understand what he had realized. But then he thought about his ascetic friends and thought that they were, they just had, that there were some humans, some people who had just a little bit of dust on their eyes and... I consider anybody that comes to practice uh, someone who has just a little dust on their eyes that if pointed in the in the direction of themselves they could come to the same freedom that that he did. So he got to he went to visit his ascetic friends and at first they thought that he'd really given up the the path because he looked so great. <laughs> he looked terrific. But then they were just taken by by how he was shining. And we have the good fortune being on this side of seeing what happens to people on retreat. And every retreat we are just blown away how everyone comes in kind of contracted and by the end everyone here looks like angels. So it wasn't just the Buddha, it's you. We're all engaged in the same process. We all have that same light that begins to shine, that heart that begins to radiate when we open that tight fist of grasping, when we just relax a little bit. 
And all we're doing here is teaching you how to relax with your experience. Not try to delete it, not try to change it, but to try to meet it with, a, with an understanding heart, with an open, with an open mind. So when he got together with his friends, his ascetic friends, the first teaching he offered was, uh, the sutra was called the, I'll give you the short version, the Dhammachaka Sutta. It's in this sutta or teaching that he, uh, that he, it's called, Dhamma means truth, Chaka is chakra or wheel. This was the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. This was the first dissemination of the teaching. And in that teaching, he started with where he started. He said, if you're born, the definition of birth is the leading cause. Well, this is Wiley's dictionary. Definition of birth is the leading cause of death. But the definition of birth is the leading cause of Sickness, old age, dying, death, loss, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get, being separated from that which you hold near and dear, frustrated desire, wounded pride, all the things. If you're born, you will experience uh, stress, dukkha, you will experience the unreliability, the unsatisfactory uh, aspects of life. He didn't say everything was like that. Basically said, birth is stressful, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get, and just being impacted moment to moment by sense experience. It's painful, it's stressful and having to just get up every day and do it again. It's hard. It's not as wonderful as we make it out to be. And he, this, is what, how, this was his diagnosis of our human condition. This is the first thing that he described. And he didn't stop there. He said, with this diagnosis, there is a, a prescription for how you, should, uh, how you should deal with this. And the prescription was precisely to turn your attention toward this, to open to it, to welcome it, to stop running from silence, stop running from, from uh, your difficulties, but to just face them. Don't, don't let your loneliness go away so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Just... Let yourself feel what's there. What, feel what it's like to have a wanting mind. Feel how hungry you are, how much longing. Feel what that's like. Feel how much aversion you have. I was shocked during my, some of my long practice periods where as I started to open to some of the underlying uh, mental states, there were times if someone came too, a little too close, I felt a kind of murderous. It was wild. And I remember having, this was in the, the late 70s, so it was the time when the Ayatollah Khomeini was ruling Iran. And he, had, he was very much demonized in the West. And he seemed, when you'd look at pictures of him, he seemed like a very... Um, um, not a very loving character. Yet, when I experienced that intense ill will, my first thought was, I feel one with the Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> I felt, I realized that I have, I have exactly whatever I projected on him. And we often realize that if you practice. We have the whole, as Zorba said, the whole catastrophe. We have all of it. So his prescription was open to it. And you want to be able to say, yes, I sat with dukkha. And I have to say that the most joyous moments I had in my practice were the times where I was in the middle of the, the deepest uh, distress. There was a period when I had 
I hate to admit it, but several years of a lot of internal restlessness. This was long into my practice. And it was as though some periods I'd be able to sit for long times comfortably and others five minutes and I'd want to leap out of my seat. And that went on and on and on. And it was so uncomfortable, incredibly uncomfortable. But there was a point where I noticed that my mind was looking for a pleasant experience. Any of you notice that today? The moment I noticed that my mind was looking for a pleasant experience, this whole thing, I just let it in, just as Mark was describing last night, turned toward it, and this very intense restlessness just melted away. And uh, I don't think that, I I haven't had a period like that since. He didn't stop with the, the fact that our life has stress. He said, what turns that stress into suffering, what turns the unreliable, unsatisfactory, difficult parts of existence into suffering is this chronic, chronic tendency to want things to be different than the way they are that expresses itself as the state of craving and the flip side aversion, the state of craving for things, craving for existence, craving for becoming, craving for um, to get somewhere, or craving for non-existence, the desire to shut everything down. That this habit of mind to move into a state of, um, of wanting, Wanting things to be different is what keeps us, um, keeps us bound on this wheel of distress. It is universal. We're literally wired to want things to be different. One person wrote it like this in a story about the Buddha. It says, once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems... He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted either. When he was finished, he he asked the Buddha how he could help him with his troubles. And the Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, Sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha said, My teaching can't help with the 83 problems but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. (laughs) What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. (laughs) So the wanting mind, the the mind that wants things to be different than the way they are, uh, is the field of the hindrances. And this is a lot of what, you are, what you're navigating in these first days of the retreat and really throughout one's practice, as, as was the case for the Buddha, is the tendency of the mind to lean forward, to topple forward into the next moment, trying to get away from this one. And I could speak endlessly about this, all kinds of examples, but uh, our time is a little short, but... I want to share the prescription that he had for the, this diagnosis, that the cause of suffering is this craving called tanha, this grasping in the mind. The antidote or the prescription is to let go, to abandon that cause, to let go into life, to die uh, to the present. To allow, as Dana Falls writes in her poem, allow. 
There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Darn a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you, carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failure, success. When loss rips at the doors of your heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So let go, let go. As one of my teachers, our teachers, Ajahn Sumedho put it, do everything, uh, practice only letting go. He says, just simplify your practice down to two words, let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras, study Buddhist psychology and learn Pali and Sanskrit and the Majamaka, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences. Let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, until the desire will fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Just keep this letting go as a constant refrain in your mind so it pops up on its own. So the Buddha didn't stop with the cause of suffering and the prescription of letting go. He said that there, the third diagnosis or the third piece of good news, I would say, is that there is an end to suffering. There is an end to this grasping. And his prescription for that, that this must be realized. You must, you must uh, realize And the way he described it, he said there is a field of experience beyond the field of matter, the entire field of your mind, that's neither this world nor another world, nor both, neither moon nor sun, this I call neither coming or going, rising or passing away, nor abiding, neither death nor rebirth. It's without support, without development. It's the end of suffering. And this is none other than the nature of our own mind. But it really is that deep acceptance of things as they are. And it it is that letting go. It is that sitting in the middle of it all. And this is what we do moment by moment in our practice. We sit in the middle of whatever it is that's happening. We don't... We stop fighting with reality. We, We open to things as they are. And finally, he said, there is a path. And that path, the Noble Eightfold Path, which is what we are engaged in on this retreat. And the center of that path is the training of our minds, cultivating wise effort and applying it toward uh, training our attention to be present, to be mindful. It includes in our daily life, non-harming, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. It includes directing our life toward renunciation, to help balance that tendency to crave and to grasp, uh, to to develop loving kindness, to counter that tendency toward ill will, and to develop non-harming, to counter our tendency to keep making messes for ourselves. But the center of it is mindfulness. And so that all of us can experience that sitting in the middle of it all, that cessation of suffering. It doesn't mean the cessation of life. It means being able to be immersed in life, as is expressed by uh, Donald Babcock in his poem called The Little Duck, and that's how I'll close. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck, riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. 
A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck. And he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he's part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree, but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That's religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. Let's sit. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. May all beings experience the joy of letting go, of letting be, as is. Thank you for your long, enduring attention. 